News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in the Catskills uh, here with Professor Christina Greer in Brooklyn. Hello. Hello. And joining us right now is Laura Namias, uh, until very recently of the Daily News Editorial Board, presently of the excellent newsletter, Fun City, and in Suffolk County with family right now. Hello, Laura. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. So let's jump right in. Uh, we're, we're a ways past the big election now. And uh, we know a couple things. We don't know a couple others. We found out some things we thought we knew that the Board of Elections was then like, oh, never mind. Uh, th- those are the wrong numbers. Laura, where do things stand uh, with the election? What just happened with the Board of Elections? And uh, does any of this say anything about ranked choice voting? Or is this just about uh, patronage and uh, Tammany Hall and uh, bureaucratic idiocy? Well, I'd, I'd be curious to hear uh, both of y'all's uh, thoughts on on this. Um, I think that it, when the snafu first occurred, there was like um, my first reaction before I was horrified and terrified and very upset for the candidates and, and the BOE staff and the people of New York City was like a small measure of satisfaction just because the Board of Elections was meeting my expectations for incompetence and, and screwing up. Because I, I think I'd be hard-pressed to think of an election in the last decade where there wasn't some sort of like major or minor problem, um, unforced error on the part of the Board of Elections. But this this seemed like I don't think it's the fault of ranked choice voting, um, but I don't think it's going to inspire a tremendous amount of confidence in ranked choice voting just because that happens to be the, the system that we're using that is also producing all of these coinciding with the problems at the BOE. But what happened is essentially that the BOE was supposed to be doing a confidence building exercise with the in-person election day and early votes running through the ranked choice system and producing results that will necessarily change when the absentee ballots, of which there are more than 125,000 of them still outstanding, um, are returned. They'll have to rerun this whole tabulation, but they, they did this tabulation just to, as an exercise in transparency to show people what the not even what the results were because they're going to change, but just that something's happening and that they know how to run the, the ranked choice system. But then obviously they screwed that up completely and then they reran it yesterday and the results were basically the same as when they made the huge mistake, but it's, it's all just, it's the multi-step process nature of this is adding to the general sense of discombobulation and confusion Um, they had refused BOE officials talked like copiously before the big, the big mistake about going on vacation. And they had refused offers of help from the people who designed the software that they were using to run the ranked choice vote simulation. And then they did like a, you know, ninth grade math quiz error 
where they ran a test simulation and then didn't hit the clear button on all the test results before adding in the real results. And that was what created the, um, the miscalculation. And Eric Adams, folks, yeah. it's nuts. The, the whole thing's just so ridiculous. It's not, not totally worth understanding in the specifics, but it was Eric Adams, folks, who, who flagged this initially. It's like, wait a minute, there, there's way too many votes here compared to what you reported earlier. And then people had been very keyed in on, on Adams because his surrogates had like fought the ranked choice system in court early on. And because he'd started casting racialized doubts on it right before the election, they're like, oh, look, he's doing this Trumpy thing online and elsewhere. How could he be saying this? Whereas it turns out he was entirely right about this, that, that this was um, just a complete unforced error. In this second unofficial count we have, the one that wasn't screwed up, it ends up being Eric Adams against Catherine Garcia, who, after Andrew Yang is eliminated in fourth place, she ends up up by 347 votes over Maya Wiley, and then ends up about two percentage points short of Eric Adams in this count. And again, this count, it's ridiculous. It doesn't actually count for anything. It was just meant to show that they could do counting, and, and they can't. Um, and one of the weird, interesting things is because they're not releasing the full ballots at this point. We only know that the counting they're doing, if in the course of the absentee ballots, Maya Wiley gets 350 more votes and she's in second, we have no idea what happens with Catherine Garcia's supporters and how they would split up and, and where that would leave things. And then the last thing I'll throw in here is... Because of the screwed up system we have, and by the way, the city board of elections is actually a creature of the state. Um, it's screwed up not because this is an overwhelmingly democratic city, but because it's a stupid patronage operation where every job has one Republican and one Democrat doing it, and they all want to go on vacation. They're still saying they might not meet next week, I believe. There's too many of them have vacation scheduled before we have the election <laughs> results. <laughs> but hey, but here's, it, vacation's important, you know. Sure. I mean... It's like they're like the U.S. Senate right now. I think, Harry, though, but here's my issue with Eric Adams, because I don't think Eric mm -hmm. Adams was wrong at all. But I found his statement. The reason why I thought it was incendiary is because it came out before the Board of Elections was like, my bad, we totally screwed up. So I thought his statement would have held much more weight for me if the Board of Elections says we screwed up and Eric Adams is like, hey, they're screwing up and I'm worried. I thought his his statement was like, they're screwing up, and then the Board of Elections says, we screwed up. So unless he had insider information, I thought that he was sort of stoking some Trump-like flames, saying, see, don't trust the results, but they had yet to give us reason not to trust the results. Now, Eric Adams was completely correct in the fact that now we have just all the reasons to believe that they're wholly incompetent, but it's a timing issue for Adams, not what he said, it's when he said it, is what made me feel uncomfortable. They had a week to count all the votes, though. A full week to do this. Uh -huh. They didn't do it. They finally counted the results. It looked like something was wrong. A whole bunch of people, not just Adams, were picking up on this early. And the inside information is just, they said there were so many votes, and now they're putting out a count with 100,000 more votes. Like, wait a minute, where did those come from? And those were the practice ballots mm -hmm. from Queens, apparently, <laughs> that they put in. So I do understand raising a flag there. In the meantime, both Adams and Garcia are already suing, which is another artifact of our screwy system in which Andrew Yang was suing like the day that he conceded. 
which was election night, uh, a bunch of other campaigns because you have to put in these challenges preemptively or else you're told you didn't put them in in a timely fashion and you can't make court challenges at all. Right. Uh, all all right. which just speaks to like an impenetrable voting system that's not doing its one job of giving people confidence, encouraging as many people as possible to turn out. Turnout was, by the way, way up from 2013, which is a, a promising sign. We won't know the full total until we have all the absentees, but from like less than 700,000 to about 900,000, maybe more. Um, but but th- this is not a great system. And that's honestly not a great result for a city of like nearly eight and a half million people that you're talking right. like 300,000 votes to, uh, to become mayor. Well, so not to jump ahead of ourselves at all, but what I find mis- this this comes up every single time because they screw up. The Board of Elections does something bad every single election. <laughs> and every time it happens, there's a great hue and cry and the mayor or somebody is like, we must fix this. And then nothing happens. Although I have slightly more faith in the current state Senate Elections Committee Chairman Zellner Myrie, who is really, really a smart guy. Um, and, and I think a good person, if I can go out on that limb, um, hopefully I'm not wrong about that. Ultimately. I'd back you up on that. Um, yeah. And if nothing else, guy. he's on our podcast regularly and is always smart and insightful there. So that is a mark of a uh, character, I believe. Very <laughs> insightful guy. But, but, but I was just thinking about this last night and getting sort of like incensed. There was, I mean, there are some reasons why it didn't happen, but the best effort that we had at wholesale changing the board of elections structure for New York City was um, our, our best chance to do it was this 2017 constitutional convention, which was on the on the ballot um, and people supported it. But then de Blasio and the governor and a host of, of state officials and city officials, Democrats and Republicans and labor unions all, all got together and, and put a bunch of money into campaigning against it. And it, it was polling very well, but then was ultimately defeated by the voters as like a referendum. Um, but there was fear that oh, it, it, the constitutional convention would have opened up the state constitution and you could make some big changes, but unions were afraid that it would lead to rollbacks of of uh, strong union protections in, in state law. It was a little bit of like a boogeyman kind of fear, but I get where they were coming from. But it also was our best one-shot chance at just changing state elections laws so we don't have a stupid system. And all the people who are now complaining about the system were against the constitutional convention that would have allowed them to change it. And the trick is always low turnout, right? Like this was yeah. one of several popular referendums in the city and the state that were crushed in weird off-year elections where only the most dedicated people turn out and organized labor in particular and what remains of the Democratic Party as an institution has wildly outsized, outsized sway. Also, you know, the, our state constitution is a, is a joke. Like it bans gambling, for instance. And yet we have Rossinos, maybe casinos coming, all this stuff. It's unbelievably long basically impenetrable and you know it's bizarre that we have a city board of elections that's a creature of the state the blasio complains about all the time never does anything but to be fair he has no power there right so so he's actually in a good position to complain he gets blamed for this like he gets blamed for the trains which he also does not entirely control though he does have board seats uh it's just a uh a mess that no one's really wanted to fix and cuomo who when he wants to do things is very strong a man's man 
uh, <laughs> you know, he keeps saying about this, I'd love to fix it. Why doesn't the city come to me with the answer? And then using that as a dodge, I do hope that this new Democratic supermajority and some serious people like Zelnor Myrie who have been talking about this and working toward getting this yeah. through two straight legislatures so that we can have another referendum. And these are the people who brought us early voting, by the way, which is awesome and right. was really overdue and it's an excellent change, are actually going to open this system up and, and create a competent one that's not a patronage operation. It means more people do show up to vote and that they can have some confidence that their votes are going to be like correctly tabulated, counted, that their ballots are going to make sense, all, all that like one-on-one hygienic stuff that we really don't have. Yeah. Those are great changes. I never thought that they would happen too. And it's so, I'm so glad that we have them. So let's talk about Eric Adams for a minute. So Laura, you have this new newsletter, Fun City, which people can find at funcity.substack.com. And you went through some of the uh, clips and uh, just thought a bit about Adams and who, who he's been and what he could be uh, and you know what, what we know about his past tells us about what he could be as mayor. Like, what, what did you uh, what did you find that grabbed you in the course of doing that? And what do you think of the job he's doing so far of presenting himself as almost mayor prior to us knowing if he's going to be? So, I mean, the original genesis of this was that in in my capacity uh, until very recently, as a member of the Daily News editorial board, we had to, and this was just such a fun and wonderful part of the job was interviewing all of the candidates for all of these offices and making the endorsements. And I did a ton of research on everyone, just I'm trying to be a responsible member of the editorial board. And I read, you know, went back and read as much as I could about Eric Adams um, before our interview. And the interview was was illuminating as it was with all of these candidates. There's so many smart people running for office. It's a counterintuitive take, but I, I, so many smart people who I think genuinely care about New York City run for public office and they sum, submit themselves to ridicule, you know, as they should. But I, you know, just, just very impressed on the whole with, with the people who, who willingly submit themselves to this. And I found myself, I, I think I was like, Maybe I was a little emotional about something else, but I found myself after reading um, just hundreds of news stories about Eric Adams, starting from where his name first begins to appear in, in newspaper clippings um, up through the, the mid-2000s when he runs for state senate and, and is elected, just overwhelmed by um, the volume of crap that he had to put up with and how constantly he he was a police officer, a transit police officer, and then works his way up to the rank of NYPD captain, which is not an easy thing to do as, as a black person in New York City at, at that time period. Um, and he is a vocal critic of the police department's practices um, and also a person who is, comes up with reform ideas and then advocates for them consistently, um, a, a consistent critic of the Giuliani administration, an early critic of the overuse of stop, question, and frisk, an early critic of the Giuliani administration policy of locking up kid, you know, arresting children, actual children, um, uh, a, a critic of our marijuana laws, an advocate for, for black car drivers and, and livery car drivers who, who were getting um, robbed and beaten up um, and didn't get the same protections as, as yellow cab drivers uh, in the early 90s. 
um, an advocate for raising awareness of friendly fire when um, undercover black NYPD officers would get shot and killed. And there were a bunch, this happened a bunch um, by white police officers. And he just, he was there, you know, he was there doing the work and, and he, in, in some of the news coverage over the last six months or so, he is presented and, and it's partly his, the way that he has presented himself as a candidate too. He's presented as sort of just like a regular old cop on the beat instead of this incredibly complex figure who was both a cop on the beat and a consistent critic of the NYPD and not in a way that he certainly didn't have to be. He could have been a go along to get along kind of guy, but he was very outspoken. I think sometimes to his own, possibly to his own physical peril and, and political peril. Um, and that side of him seems not to have gotten as much attention in the last six months, either by design or just uh, people forgetting. But I know there are a lot of people in New York City, and I think, I think it's reasonable to think that a lot of the people who voted for him first have known him for a long time. Um, they they remember him. He's he's been around doing this for a, for a very long time um, and advocating for. He's not just a cop. He's a cop who wants to change the cops. So it's a very interesting person, a fascinating person. Chrissy, what do you think about how Maya Wiley went at Eric Adams, particularly in the debates, but also in like fundraising materials and elsewhere, where she she was effectively arguing that he was the supporter of stop and frisk and racist policing policies, which I thought was, was, was very striking, not least because these are the two leading black candidates, but also given Adam's role in fighting against stop and frisk, like, like obviously we're waiting on the final results, but, but do you think that was a, a fair approach to, uh, to his record, a successful one? What did you think of that? Well, I think, you know, in, in the debate world, when you have 60 to 90 seconds to throw a punch, 90 seconds maybe to answer it, I think Maya Wiley was able to raise a lot of questions among people, say, in her base that would make them feel uncomfortable, right? They see he's a cop or former cop. So already for some people, that's that's a, a disqualifying factor. But I don't know if... As much as we saw these candidates, and Harry, you made this point before, and I've been thinking about it so much, there was a lot of quantity time that we spent with the candidates, but not enough quality time, I don't think. Because in these debates, because of this eight-to-one matching funds, as opposed to six-to-one, because people were allowed to hang in there for so long, and the last three debates we had eight candidates on the stage, when honestly it should have been four, maybe five, honestly, if we're looking at the percentages possibly four, maybe even three, if I'm being uh, a real cutthroat. And, you know, obviously the, the conversation is, well, we, you know, the polling was bad, so we can't do it based on polling. And with eight to one, everyone's money is pretty good, so we can't really do it based on money. But we have to figure out some sort of criteria to sort of whittle it down so we can get quality conversation. I say all that to say, Maya Wiley was able to raise some questions amongst her supporters about this Eric Adams character. But if you read Laura's piece, it is very clear that Eric Adams has been on the right side of history for a lot of, a lot of issues. 
It's how he says things that makes people uncomfortable and possibly ignore him. But what he's saying is not crazy. Like, I'm sorry, you know, and I keep going back to the rats. I keep going back to the rats because everyone's like, he's so crazy. He's drowning rats on the front steps of Borough Hall. But, you know, when Laura and I spoke, I don't think about rats on a daily basis, but thousands of New Yorkers do. Like, that's a real issue for certain people. And I think he taps into a zeitgeist in a way that no politician has. No one on that stage did. And he's not of the political class, even though he's been a public servant for 20-some-odd years. He's just, he's been able to play that insider-outsider role beautifully because I think in a lot of ways in his life, he has been. I mean, and if you look more specifically about Black candidates, they've had to be perfect. There are these, you know, I call them the new style candidates. That's what we call in political science literature, especially Black politics literature more specifically. Your Fentys, your Bookers, your Hakeem Jeffries, your Dinkins, not a hair out of place. Obama, you know, Ivy, Ivy Plus Education, the three-piece suit. Everyone, you say Dinkins, everyone's like debonair, eloquent. You know, if you're sneaky racist, you say articulate, right? So all these things that Eric Adams is not. And he's he'll tell you, he's like, I want to be, I want to be your working class president. And real equality, especially for black people in politics, looks like we don't have to be these perfect candidates. We don't have to sort of say everything eloquently to make white people feel comfortable. We can just be who we are and you get in where you fit in. And I think that's what makes a lot of people in the political class nervous because he's just sort of like, I am who I am and you can't wrangle me. I mean, we know that so many of the politicians that are quote unquote black politicians, black male politicians more specifically, the reason why they're accepted is because they are on such a tight rein. They don't say, they don't say anything out of place. They don't do anything out of place. They don't look out of place. And most of their lives, they haven't been out of place, right? They've been to all the schools that sort of white people feel comfortable with. They say all the things that kind of white voting class feels comfortable with. Eric Adams isn't any of those things. He's he's, the sharp, he's the sharp James, John Street. Sharp James, Newark, John Street, Philadelphia. And if Eric Adams is successful, he'll most likely be compared to those two because there are so few black mayors who are of his vein. All the other ones are of the Dinkins, Obama Corey vein. And and I put Marion Barry, honestly, in the Dinkins, Corey, Obama, Hakeem set, because yes, we know some of the latter troubles of, of Marion Barry, but he was, he had all of the pedigree and the eloquence and sort of the mission of the sort of Black political leaders of that time. It was so interesting reading through the archives, finding like over and over and over again, Eric Adams would get characterized as someone who says, inflammatory or incendiary or divisive things in like op-eds and editorial pages from the mid to late 90s. Um, and it's just so interesting to look back at what exactly it was. So, you know, every once in a while he's saying something that's like, this is an unforced error. You might not be wrong necessarily, but you're not helping yourself politically. But most of the time what he would be saying is something on the order of, you know, um, like racism exists or we can't pretend like like cops don't see color. Cops are people, people see color, you know, color exists. And people be like, that's, you know, in the 90s, that was not a la mode. That was not fashionable. Everyone was was post Martin Luther, you know, that was politically the right thing to say, um, was that not to talk about it so much. And he talked about it. And I think in the current politics, that is totally right. Like 
to say that you don't see color these days is an insane thing to say. Everybody sees color. We always have. It was crazy to pretend like we didn't. And he looks like so insightful in hindsight, so insightful and so smart and was treated like he was like a demagogue sort of in some of these op-ed pages and written about as if he were like a dangerous fanatic for just saying, you know, it's we're not going to be able to ignore that black people are black and white people are white and white cops see people they're arresting and see their skin color and that that is a dynamic that exists and we have to address it. It's just fascinating. So a lot of the things Adam says are anything but accidental. So when he's at National Action Network with Al Sharpton on Martin Luther King Day, and he says, uh, you know, uh, New York is for New Yorkers and people who've been here and other people should go back to Iowa and Ohio. That's not an accident. When he came on our podcast and talked about carrying a gun as mayor, that wasn't an accident. Um, the waiters tried to retcon the story a bit, or his advisors did. But, you know, there were news stories about that the next day, and they weren't saying he misspoke or he, he's what, here's what he really meant. He also said, by the way, you'd probably get rid of his security detail. Where some of this gets interesting is he, he's controlled and thoughtful in his language. And, and over, if you go back through his clips, people are constantly over swinging. So he liked Farrakhan. He uh, pressed uh, Dinkins to meet with Farrakhan in exchange for his endorsement at one point. Uh, but he never signed on to any of the anti-Semitic nation of Islam business. And in fact, scrupulously distanced himself from that any time it came up. And, you know, clearly he was seeing a sort of conservative, upright, uh, police yourself sort of appeal in some of this rhetoric. Uh, it wasn't accidental. And then people would say, oh, he, he's with that guy. He's the same as that guy. This is this is no good um, with only a handful of exceptions, like accusing Major Owens of stealing some of his petitions when he was running against him. Almost none of the things that he says that get taken as missteps are actually missteps. I think you're right that, that, that with the benefit of hindsight, a lot of them read well. There are some fascinating exceptions in, in things he chose to do and chose to do publicly. For instance, driving out to meet uh, Mike Tyson when he got released from jail on his rape conviction, uh, which became a big internal NYPD issue as multiple commissioners tried to push him out, failed. Um, and then, that, then the issue became he was meeting up with an ex-felon. But given some advancement, I would think, in, in like gender politics and how these things are, are understood. I think going, going to meet with a, a convicted rapist was probably a move you would not repeat at this point, for instance. Um, Laura, but see, Kristen, hold on, hold I, on, Harry. Hold these on. other guys still have a shot at Hold <laughs> on, because it's a little more complicated than that. So it's like... Let's go. The, the list of things you ran through, it's like, so when Mike Tyson gets out of prison, not jail, right? I mean, the country was saying a narrative, but there was a, a larger, more complex conversation going on in Black America as like, okay, so you threw this young man in prison where the story was just, we're still divided on that story with Desiree Washington. Mm -hmm. So like Eric Adams supporting Mike Tyson doesn't make him like a rape apologist because lots of men and women had complicated mm -hmm. feelings about how and why Mike Tyson was in prison the first time. Secondly, it complicated things that he was a cop, right? And that, that he was going to meet with the felon in yeah, interesting but ways. But yes, most celebrities, black, white and other also hang out with cops as their 
security off duty. So like there's this larger narrative of like the white media is constantly harassing black people. This is why, you know, like whenever we hear the word Farrakhan, it's like black people by and large are not thinking about Farrakhan. White people think about Farrakhan constantly and bring him up. We don't talk about him. We haven't talked about him since the 80s. So it's like this idea that Farrakhan is like a black leader. It's like nobody's thinking about him but white people who constantly write about him. So it's just like, I, so so I why think, was Adams eager to make that connection at the time? Like, how do you see that? Because he's strategic. Because the thing is, at the, at the same time, Farrakhan elicits very strong feelings on, on many sides of the spectrum. Many people think that he's brilliant and a genius. Other people think that he's the worst demagogue, anti-Semitic on the planet. I don't know where he lies ultimately, right? But the thing is, Eric Adams is like a lot of Black people where it's just like, Okay, I don't agree with everything he says, but I'm not willing to like throw him out completely. It's just no one no one really thinks about him like that. So, Eric Adams also has clearly been very very strident in like his support for not just Israel, Hasidic community, Jewish communities in Brooklyn. So like he's able to to thread this needle. So, I I say all this to say Eric Adams has been a public servant and in the public eye for several decades. He is very clear how to maintain his support with and among Black people. He's very clear on how to maintain his support with and among Jewish people, how to maintain his support with ethnic whites, immigrants. You run down the list of people that are very specific and powerful groups in Brooklyn, which is where he's resided. So, I mean, this this idea that, like, these stories that constantly talk about, like, the shady side of Eric Adams, which I'm not saying he's not shady. I don't I don't know specifically. But they're always what I found so interesting about Laura's piece and the conversations that I've had about Eric Adams with so many different people is that they are completely explainable. And they also explain why so many people support him. Like, it's not foreign or rocket science why he stays winning. And I think the last point I want to make is there are a lot of folks— who disagree with Eric Adams. So they put him in the, he's not smart category. And that's where people make a mistake. That's where people keep putting Al Sharpton in that category because you don't agree with him. So it's like, oh, he's stupid. I heard this with Condoleezza Rice. Oh, I don't like her. So she's stupid. It's like, Eric Adams is not stupid. You don't get to be the working class candidate as a black man in New York City, currently leading the democratic field if you're stupid. It just doesn't happen. You can look at the map and tell he's not stupid. So I think the political elites in this city and the political class need to sort of take a little reassessment at how they consistently underestimate this man or have in the past just because they didn't agree with his views. They thought that he was not smart and he stays running circles around them in every elected office he gets. So so one more Eric Adams thing before we get to our, our big close. He has been constantly misunderestimated because he talks like a Brooklyn guy. I can I can appreciate this. And uh, he, he gets written off. I think he got written off in a lot of newsrooms by editors, by, by white editors, as I've written as I've written earlier in this race, when all the attention got focused on Andrew Yang and even the progressives who, who freaked out about him extremely late hardly bothered to register the the leading black candidate in the race, which I thought was just wild. To me, a lot of the actual shady side with Eric Adams, uh, Laura, if you have thoughts here, involves his fundraising, his uh, developers, his political friends, um, and and, and something that's maybe much less of a tabloid narrative than than some of the uh, 
quote unquote wilder wilder things he said. Uh, like, if if he does come through, like from your observations, what do you uh, what do you expect? Are the characters and the storylines we're going to want to track with with the people Adams has uh, done political business with? Right. So this is something that I have been hearing from people for a few months now. They say he he has existed in in political life in New York for such a long time, and he has tangential relationships to a bunch of different um, scandals, but has never he's not been involved personally in any of them. But someone he's close with, or you know, someone who works near him is is involved. He's tangentially related to the aqueduct uh, investigation. He had a, a deputy um, borough president, I think, or someone in the borough president's office was tangentially related to or who uh, came up on the wiretap in the NYPD corruption investigation with the parking placards and um, uh, uh, de Blasio and the ticket fixing and everything um, a few years ago. Um, he's been investigated many times at this point and has never gotten in trouble himself for anything. People keep saying to me, his mayoralty will hinge if he becomes mayor, would hinge on who he picks to flesh out his administration. Um, he is a person who sometimes um, picks people with not the best judgment uh, to surround himself with, but, uh, you know, not not universally, but that that could be a problem. He's like a big tent kind of guy. Um, sometimes he doesn't see the flaws that might be readily apparent about about a candidate for for a position um, that other people might see and that that could be that could be an issue for him. And so he just needs to exercise good judgment in, in the kind of team that he brings on. Um, if he does become mayor and not let anyone take advantage of him, but not that he himself had any actual problems because Lord knows he has been one of the last clips that, that I was looking through a, a couple weeks ago was that the 100 blacks in law enforcement, the nonprofit that he led in the late nineties and, and early two thousands was actually being surveilled by the NYPD secretly, and it came out in some separate investigation. He's not like not wanted for being under investigation, whether warranted or not, multiple times, and has never really gotten in any. No one ever seemed to find anything, and it doesn't seem like they weren't trying. So, I, the the one place I, I think he has actually was more than tangentially related and, and did not come up looking so clean was the aqueduct process, which involved majority leader at the time, uh, Malcolm Smith, who, who later ended up in his own legal trouble in, in a complicated party switching bribe, try to run for mayor situation, um, but who Adams was close with. So Malcolm Smith had been there. And then John Sampson came, uh, comes on as, as the head of the conference majority leader. And Adams is working closely with him uh, to try to steer this bid uh, to this group, AEG, um, who'd given money to Adams and to various other people, including at a birthday party he'd had. And then eventually this contract gets pulled. But the, the inspector general does put out a, uh, a report saying that, that, that uh, Adams' account of what happened and that these guys just happened to show up at his, his party, like defied credulity. And the, it really looks like something's wrong there. That's not the same as uh, as criminal charges. That's not career ending. 
but but he was very much in that mix. Um, he's also, you know, financially tight with a lot of people who've given to de Blasio, some of whom have ended up as the subject of investigations themselves. And again, like investigations are just that. They don't necessarily mean anything's wrong. Andrew Yang tried to say, you've been investigated anywhere. We all know you're, you're dirty and corrupt. And that, that's really pushing things. Uh, but, you know, Adams is someone who's, who's played money politics. In this campaign finance matching system, is meant to be open to everyone. You know, he, he was a leading fundraiser from Jump. He's, he's close with a number of big developers in Brooklyn. And, you know, I, I think you're right that, that, like, how carefully he watches those lines is going to be very interesting and how aggressive the people giving him legal advice are. The people who gave de Blasio that advice were like, you know, no one knows where the border is, push. And depending on your perspective, that either greatly damaged his uh, morality or was just fine. And he pushed as hard as he could. And, you know, the authorities looked at Including Maya Wiley, yep. you know, giving him potentially questionable legal advice. Yep. She says progressive right. candidate. Mm-hmm. She, she, she can't talk about that advice because of attorney-client uh, privilege, which, come on. Right. But see, I think that's why so many people are fine with Adams, because at a certain point in time, if you're constantly investigated, it seems like a pile-on. And then even if you have done something shady, folks just don't have the appetite for it, because it's like, ugh, leave this man alone. So now you're investigating his dog walker or whomever it is. And I think... You know, it's a really fascinating phenomenon because we we aren't yet at the point where we can have, you know, like, at least we haven't seen it, not with David Dinkins, we have an N of one, but like someone who's not quasi-perfect. And that that's like unsettling to a lot of people, especially in a Black candidate. And especially since, you know, a previous conversation we had before we came on air, the fact that a lot of people don't want a Black mayor. <laughs> Period. And the line between unappealing and illegal and unethical, all those things, is always in the eyes of prosecutors and politicians yeah. with uh, newspaper folks and TV folks and others sort of suggesting where it should be. Uh, but, but there's all sorts of thumbs on those scales, and, and we would get to see how that plays out. But, but before we close here, how are things looking as of now for, uh, for Catherine Garcia and Maya Wiley. And in the event that either of them close that gap when we get to this final count with the absentee ballots, you know, uh, what are the different ways in which politically this could uh, th- this could play out and potentially also legally and in the courts as we're in this period where it's all done except the counting and the counting's taking a long time and making things feel yeah. very uncertain? Well, so in... The final, if, if uh, either Maya or um, Catherine Garcia is able to, once all the absentees are opened up and counted, overtake Eric Adams, um, even by a small margin, I, I would think, you know, I would think Eric Adams is fully within his rights to, to request, and it might be labor intensive, there might be like a hand recount and a hand, re, you know, rerunning of the whole system just to make sure everything was tabulated correctly given the board of elections um, notoriety for not necessarily being able to count well. But it will be such an interesting dynamic if either of those two women, both of whom would be historic in their own right, if they became the mayor, but if they, if, if they were, 
and they overtake Eric Adams, there is going to be this, this, I, I think that voters who rank Eric Adams first, who numerically seem to, it seems likely that they'll outnumber um, people who, who rank Garcia or, or Wiley first, no matter what, um, that they might be very angry and they might feel disenfranchised. And, and it'll just be such an interesting thing to see if that's what happens. And a lot will rest on Eric Adams to maybe put faith back in the process and do, you know, to the extent that Trump comparisons are valid, to do the the opposite of what Donald Trump did and, and you know, restore, say to his, his supporters that he, you know, supports the results of the election and that he supports whoever becomes the mayor, um, be the first female mayor in the history of the city of New York. Um, either way, we're, we'll have, you know, any of the three ways it could go and be it historic, either a second black man as mayor or our first female mayor or first um, black female mayor. It's all like I, the, the representation possibilities are exciting, but I think it, it does feel a little bit like a zero sum game in a way that is really not fair um, for the people of New York. And, and I hope, I hope that it's not acrimonious, but we'll see. Chrissy, is this a zero sum game? I know Eric Adams was saying this at a couple points and then saying his supporters were about the Yang Garcia alliance. And from the count we have now, it looks like tactically, at least that was really successful that uh, right after Yang's eliminated, as we mentioned, right, Garcia jumps from 20 odd thousand votes behind Wiley to 350 votes roughly on top. And, you know, New York is New York. And, and there's certainly for all of these campaigns, some math around race and identity and who's going to support who. Like, like what, what are your thoughts as we're here and it's done but the counting? Yeah, I mean, we still have so much more counting to go. I mean, I just think it's fascinating mm-hmm. that Yang, the math guy, didn't do the math and realize that, like, you bringing Garcia on, totally endorsing her, but not ever getting her to say anything positive about you as far as an endorsement is concerned, isn't necessarily going to help your math. Um, So I'm still questioning, like, what did he get out of the deal besides attention, which we know that's like 90% of the battle with him, but like he didn't get votes ostensibly. Um, Maybe he got not Adams. Yeah, maybe. I mean, but then there were so many people who were not Yang, not Adams, like both together. Um, so it's interesting how Yang and Adams got lumped together, even though Adams and Garcia, I think, are a lot more similar than people talk about. So many people are putting Garcia and Wiley together, but I see Garcia as more of an Adams person. So I don't know if they were doing the, like, I want a female mayor because men are just a hot mess right now. Or, you know, I like, you're telling yourself you like Garcia because you sneaky want a white person. Like, I don't know what, I don't know. I think the sort of maps and the sort of postmortem will sort of give us a, a clearer picture of what it is. I do still think that, you know, even though we had ranked choice voting, people still voted strategically. Ranked choice voting is supposed to just be, you can vote your purest intentions. But I still think that a lot of people thought very deeply about how they wanted to sort of try and game the system. And I think, you know, if we're just being honest amongst friends here, I don't know how many New Yorkers with rising crime and the reputation that black mayors are soft on crime. And you have one candidate, who, one of the black candidates who is saying defund the police and she's the progressive. Your other options are Garcia and Adams. Like, I don't know how many New Yorkers real talk like 
would vote for Eric Adams, not because of necessarily philosophy, but because he's a black man who's not what they're accustomed to in a black man politician. So that's where I think Garcia also got a lot of votes. She's also bland. She's bland enough where you can put she's she's like sneaky Obama. She's bland enough where you can put all of your hopes and dreams on her. Right. So like because she doesn't really say much and she doesn't give you much. Um, So she's kind of everything and nothing at the same time. On policing, she was nothing and, and and a little everything, right? Just just very generalized and vague, I think, for the most part, about what she'd do, past things pretty much the whole field was talking about, like requiring residency for new hires. Uh, right. She had a gun buyback thing, whatever. The thing where I think she was really distinguished from Adams and what I, I think we could shorthand as the more conservative part of the Democratic field was actually around housing. And, and related homelessness and mental illness that, that she talked about supportive housing in a serious way as the solution to a lot of our presumably intractable problems, which it is, and generally candidates don't because that's so expensive and the money isn't there. Like the feds are even under this administration are not putting that in. And she was talking about effectively ending single family zoning everywhere and allowing for more stuff to go out in a denser city, which I think could actually be yeah. If this was to be implemented under a Mayor Garcia or another mayor picking up this idea, uh, actually transformative and gets us out of the sort of limited sum game, you know, uh, fixed pie fights that we're having. And you see in all the Manhattan rezoning battles where, you know, the people are there, Brooklyn Heights or whatever, and have very nice lives and very nice homes. They're like, we, we love change, but not here. Past those issues, I think I think she was, a, in, in a lot of ways, a very generic, just competence-oriented appeal. Yeah, but part of that competence is I keep my mouth shut and don't give you reason to think that I'm incompetent. Yes. Well, I, I, we found her really the edit board and, and I personally, it was where she seemed to distinguish herself in my mind when it came to policing um, was just this experience that she does have um, because all the ideas in the world don't matter if you can't get um, you have this huge uh, collective bargaining unit that you, you kind of have to sell on on some of it to get lots of different changes. And her experience dealing with this huge, largely male um, unionized workforce at the Department of Sanitation and and being able to communicate with them and lead them was was I think a, a pretty good selling point that she might be a little bit better at that than, than someone else um, without that kind of experience. But, you know, but here's, who here's knows? a question, Laura, does that constant sort of, I know how to deal with unions. Is that code for, I know whiteness. When it comes to that, that particular, the, the police um, patrol officers union, maybe um, dealing with a bunch of, of, uh, white men um in unionized jobs um how diverse is sanitation as a workforce i think sanitation is a little more diverse um and it's union yeah yes and she got the endorsement of the sanitation uh union well i surely Um, hope so but (laughs) yes But, but, but yeah, I do think that she is, is like, might be like an effective, there's a possibility that she could be an effective messenger to 
those groups that are able to communicate effectively, both because of experience and because of identity, um, you know, whether or not that's a, a, a bad thing, it, it's like might just be a useful tool to have. But so it adds, you know, maybe so it adds. So, so Garcia has talked about that, and it is, I, I do find that compelling. But it's not in her ads, for instance, right? Whereas Maya Wiley, a lot of her closing appeal was aimed directly at the NYPD and the unions, and I think there's something very emotionally satisfying about that. After De Blasio, in particular, you know, like the sergeant's union doxed his daughter, and he didn't do anything. Like they they just walked all over this guy, and he got this stop and frisk when he wanted, although a lot of that, well, he deserves political credit, actually happened in the last Bloomberg-Kelly years uh, as the pressure built on that issue. But he got to say, I did stop and frisk, and then he basically just let the department run itself. And I'm not sure a mayor running on, I'm going to fight and stop this department, which would be her department, as satisfying as that is, is necessarily the best way to actually get to those reforms. Although, of course, depending on how this race ends up, we, we may or may not get a chance to, uh, to find out. Laura, thank you again for, for joining us. We've been talking for almost an hour now. Clearly, I think we could do this all day. Uh, but w- w- what's your closing thoughts and advice for New Yorkers as uh, we're watching and waiting for the uh, dust to settle? And what should be at the top of the, uh, the next mayor's agenda come, come January, given the uh, strange and precarious state the city is in, you know, Midtown is still a ghost town. You've got seven months to get ready and to like come in. Like uh, uh, what should we be watching for and where should our, our next mayor begin? 110th. Um, well, I guess the closing thing I would say is that, you know, and maybe I am being super naive and Pollyanna-ish, but I think that the people who ended up at the top of this heap are really good and interesting candidates. I mean, they they all have flaws, um, but I think that they want the job for the right reasons. Um, I don't know how well any of them will be able to execute it because I don't have a crystal ball, but um, I, I think that they, this is a good, I think it's a good crop of candidates and people should not be freaking out or whatever it is that they're doing um, about the, the democratic primary challengers. But then at the top of the agenda, um, to the extent that the shooting uh, shootings are continuing, that's going to be, and who knows how to fix that? There's, it seems like everyone's going to be treating the city as like a, a like a, a laboratory experiment, trying to figure out how to do this without just like throwing everyone in jail for forever, which is clearly not a productive way to run a society. Um, at calibrating our our response to rising gun crime. Um, to to actually just stop that problem without causing a bunch of other collateral damage. I don't think that we know as a society perfectly how to how to do that. And we definitely don't know how to do that as a city that well, it seems like. Um, and then the other big issue is 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 uh, housing and housing security. And um, that'll be something that the next mayor is going to need to get on right away. Um, we'll have like a pipeline of projects that, that come from the de Blasio administration that are going to need to be fixed or not fixed. And there's going to be this huge trust gap to build up between the next mayor and the city council who are, are looking to be like a bunch of people who are very, very, very skeptical of any building anything ever again, because they've been burned and, and had their trust broken. 
um, when it comes to rezoning and, and doing anything that allows for large scale development or building more housing or whatever. But we're, we're in, at risk of being sort of turned into a time capsule and and the city will be frozen in amber and there won't be any more housing. Um, we just have to figure out how we're going to fix that problem and we need to do it pretty quickly. Um, yeah. So you want to make any predictions? After Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez beat Joe Crowley, and I was like at the the primary night event with um, Dan Donovan and uh, Michael Grimm instead, like at the wrong event, I stopped, got out of the predictions business entirely because I had beclowned myself. Um, so I have no predictions. Whatever happens, happens. Very sad. Um, and Laura, can you remind us again um, where we can find all of your brilliant writing? It's Fun City. It's the Substack, funcitynewyork.substack.com, I think. Thank you so much for coming on FAQ. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Long time listener. <laughs> <first> time <laughs> Come back soon. It's an honor. Come back soon. Yeah. Thanks. FAQ. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's Midsilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn, Long Island, and someplace outside of New York City. A special thank you to our guest, Laura Namias of Fun City. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Wear a mask, be well, be safe, wash your hands, and we'll see you next week. Isn't that where we, we had a whole uh, uh, episode about Lindsay and Fun City that ended up just being largely about the hotness of John Lindsay? <laughs> Listen, I have a major crush on John Lindsay. I think so. My mother-in-law worked for him. She worked in his administration, I think, in child welfare. Um, but I think she thought he was cute too. But I don't want to put words. Yeah, on. he's well. Ask her. Yeah. <laughs> Tell her she's got competition. Oh my goodness, he's like super foxy. Tall drink of water, yeah. I know, hello there, John Lindsay. <laughs>